Welcome to the VHA podcast. I'm Emma Scott, Senior Workplace Relations Consultant. Joined with me today is Brie Marinia, Workplace Relations Consultant. Welcome, Brie. Thanks, Emma. So, another one in the series of Allied Health Professionals implementation material and another clue. It's like another dollar another day, but it's another clue. Um, what, what do we have on screen for people that are listening? Um, so it looks like an album cover, um, to me for The Clash, which I actually know who it is. It's a London band. Um, or maybe it's advertising their song, London Calling. Um, he doesn't look very happy. There's a man on there smashing a guitar. Yes, he looks very, very disgruntled, I think. He does. Um, so I think based on... He looks pretty, like he's um, aggrieved by his guitar. And the mm-hmm. name of the band is The Clash. It's mm-hmm. got to have something to do with um, disputes or dispute resolution. Well, you've definitely uh, nailed that one. <laughs> um, we are talking about the dispute resolution related clauses in the agreement. So um, starting with clause 14, which is the dispute resolution procedure, what was the first change made to that clause? So there was a simple change um, made at 14.1b Roman numeral 2, and that's that a dispute uh, can be made regarding the 2020 agreement. And why was that introduced? So although it's not usual to reference the previous agreements, it was done uh, because we had such a short uh, 2020 rollover agreement. So that was the reason why uh, we agreed to that. And then the next change? So that's at subclause 14.2e and we've got that on screen and it outlines that where an application to the Commission has been made in accordance with clause 14 about an alleged dispute, uh, including a consultation dispute, a party or their representative may seek an interim decision in accordance with section 589 of the Act about whether a party has complied uh, with clause 14.2 of the agreement. So in terms of section 589 of the Fair Work Commission, that's in regards to interim decisions. So it essentially outlines that a party or representative can ask for that interim decision uh, in regards to compliance for clause 14.2. And what does clause 14.2 cover? So it covers the general obligations around generally attempting to resolve the dispute through carrying the processes out in the agreement and doing them cooperatively um, and expeditiously. And then in addition to that, we have the what people call the status quo um, provision, which is around while the dispute's being um, resolved, that the work will continue in according to the normal practice um, prior to the dispute existing until it is finished and resolved. And then the next clause is 14.3. Were there any changes made to that clause? Yeah, so it's just a minor change that for the dispute settlement facilitation that it includes time for um, meeting release. And then clause 14.4 is where the most substantive changes were made. Yeah, that's correct. So they were intended to make the process for discussions at the workplace more efficient or in some cases likely represent what actually happens in practice. So what's the first step? 
Uh, so we've got them on screen. So that is the discussions between the employees, the union and or another representative and the relevant supervisor, manager and or other relevant representative of the employer, which uh, can include a human resources, however they're described, representative who is authorised to resolve the dispute. And then what's the second step if it's unresolved after that first step? So you've got more discussions and those discussions are between the employees, the union and another representative and um, more senior levels of management, which may include a human resources representative as well in there. So the reference to who is authorised to resolve the dispute in that first step is an important addition that employers should note. Yeah, so it is because there's a provision that we added at subclause 14.4a Roman numeral 3 that outlines that if the employer representative that's attending the meeting doesn't have authorisation to resolve the dispute, then the dispute can progress directly to the second step um, of senior levels of management. And what does this do? It's, in it, it's really intended to make sure that the employer representatives that are going to attend uh, can resolve the dispute um, because otherwise the conversation essentially won't be effective at that first point. And what about the timeframes? Were there any changes there at subclause 14.4b? Yeah, so the 2020 agreement used to say that the discussions will take place within 14 days or such longer period as mutually agreed, save that such the agreement such agreement won't be unreasonably withheld. But now um, it says what we've got outlined on screen, that the discussions will take place within 14 days or such longer period as is reasonable, or in the case of a collective dispute under clause 14.5, as soon as practical uh, within the 14-day period. And then the next subclause is 14.4c, which isn't adjusted, but it's actually new. Yeah, so this is a clause like we have entered into other agreements and that was really intended to ensure that if anyone has any concerns about not about someone not complying with the requirements of clause 14.4, then they're raised as early as possible. So we've got that on screen where it essentially outlines that where a party believes the requirements of this subclause 14.4 have not been complied with, they should notify the other party of their concern in writing as soon as practical. And what about subclause 14.4D? So those um, provisions just now outline more examples of the reasons where disputes are not resolved at the workplace and um, when they can kind of be referred to, to the Commission. So some of those examples include that the discussions at subclause 14.4A uh, have not resolved the dispute, which is self-explanatory. Then what you've got is that a party has not participated in the discussions at the workplace. So someone might refuse to participate um, in those discussions that you're trying to have at the workplace. Then we have got uh, after the discussions at subclause 14.4a Roman numeral 1 and before a discussion at 14.4a Roman numeral 2 occurs, a party to the dispute indicates that their position in, is unchanged. So that would um, kind of occur when the party indicates that regardless um, of the initial discussion that took place, there's no change in view. And really from that, there's no um, likelihood of a second discussion changing that position. So in effect, why would you have that second discussion if yeah, nothing has changed in that aspect and, and really it's not going to change? 
And then the last one there, as an example that it's got there, is that a person at subclause 14.4a, Roman numeral 1, has not met the requirements of subclause 14.2. So that's um, about not complying with the general dispute obligations that we described earlier at clause 14.2. Okay, then the next clause is subclause 14.4e. What is that intended to do? Yeah, so that's um we've got that outlined on screen, and what that's intended to do is not limit the definition of discussion, but outline what it can include, such as discussions in person, over the phone, you've got via video conference, via email, or discussions in writing. However, it also um, outlines that a party not a party will not unreasonably refuse to discuss the matter in person where it's practical and having regard to the general dispute obligations that, again, we've described earlier. So really, sometimes in writing, um, resolving disputes may happen, but there's going to be some instances where really you, you might need to have an in-person meeting and you request that to really have a good, good try at trying to resolve the dispute. And then one of the second last clauses that was amended was in relation to disputes of a collective nature. Yeah, that's correct. So previously it wasn't really clear on what steps should be taken at the local level. So now that actually has been made clear. So that is really around that no um, dispute of a collective nature can be referred to the commission directly without a genuine attempt to resolve the dispute at the workplace level. Um, but that's really just step two, uh, which is the senior uh, discussion uh, for representation by the employer. So step one can be bypassed and the discussions must happen as soon as practical, um, but within 14 days of the dispute being notified. So that is really the intention to um, try and resolve that quicker because it is a collective dispute. And then lastly, there's a minor change at subclause 14.8 with the inclusion of subclause B. Yeah, so that's another change that we made in other agreements, which is essentially making sure that for the avoidance of doubt, nothing in the clause affects the operations of section 596 of the Act, which are centred around representation um, by lawyers and paid agents and seeking leave to appear. Okay, so I believe that's all the changes in that clause um, 14. What about the new clause, Independent Dispute Resolution Panel? Yeah, so although it wasn't something that VARPA claimed originally, it was something that the um, union wanted to put in the settlement and told the department it was something that they wanted similar to the mental health agreement. So it is something that we uh, put in the agreement, but we did amend through some drafting mechanisms. So it's not exactly the same, but it's very, very similar. And what matters can the Independent Dispute Resolution Panel hear and determine? So they can determine disputes for applications around Clause 89, Supervision and Management, Clause 90, Workload Allocation and Safe Staffing, Clause 91, Backfill, and then um, in relation to classifications of an employee under the agreement, um, which includes advanced practice. And the panel is independent of the Department of Health, VARPA and the VHIA. So who makes up the panel? Yeah, so it's got to um, include three people, which includes a nominee of the union on behalf of the employees, a nominee of the v VHIA on behalf of employers and 
um, an, an independent chairperson um, who is agreed by the union and the BHA, or if we can't agree on that, then it's someone that's going to be nominated by the Minister of Health. And a nominee means it's someone from the field rather than a BHIA staff member. Um, the individuals that make up the independent dispute resolution panel are independent from both BARPA and the BHIA? Yeah, they are. So we nominate um, an individual, both VARPA or ourselves, and they have to be completely independent of both of us. And can an individual who's directly and or personally affected by the outcome of the dispute be a member of the panel? They cannot. Um, they actually have to recuse themselves if they are. So who's on the panel won't be set for the life of the agreement, but it can vary from matter to matter. Yeah, that's correct. So the nominee may change depending on the nature of the matter. And how long after an application is made to the panel will deliberations begin? So the panel is meant to commence the determining the application within 21 days of receiving an application and conclude its um, deliberations as expeditiously as they can. And where do the panel meet? So there's no set location, but they may, um, upon request, decide to hear the matter in the workplace itself. And in such cases, the employer would provide a suitable meeting room and other relevant facilities for any date requested by the panel? Yeah, that's correct. Uh, and in addition, the employer will allow the panel to inspect any work site um, if the panel believes that this will assist with determining a matter, and that's subject to any health, safety and privacy considerations but also a party may also request that the panel hear it at a particular work at the workplace and um, they will consider that, but it's still of the decision of the panel to work out where the best place for a hearing might be. So we've spoken about who makes up the panel. Um, what about who can appear before the panel? So if a party wants representation from a lawyer or a paid agent, can they appear before the panel? So lawyers and paid agents who are not direct employees of the union's uh, BHA department or the employers may only appear before the panel where it gives them permission to do so. And you mentioned there was an independent chair. What's their function? So the function of um, them that we've got on screen is to notify all parties to the matter and the department of the hearing dates. They've uh, got to chair the proceedings of the panel. Uh, and then conciliate matters by chairing conferences between the employer and then their all their representative representatives and the union and anything else necessary to give effect to the provisions of the clause. And you also mentioned earlier that the panel will commence deliberations for a dispute 21 days after the application has been made. A logical question would be who can make the application? So that's either an employer or an employee or their representative can make that application to the panel. And it's important to highlight, though, that before either party makes an application to the panel, they must first attempt to resolve the dispute locally through Clause 14, which is what we described earlier. Yeah, that's correct. So where the obligations of the Clause 14 haven't actually been complied with prior to the application, the chair will refer the parties back to the workplace to attempt to try and resolve it through those local workplace discussions in the first instance. And can you walk us through what occurs after an application is made by an employee or their representative that's directly involved or the dispute affects them? Yeah, so um, what it is that the chair will notify the unions, VHA and the employer of an application made by an employee directly to the panel. 
and then the union and the VHA has a right to be heard in relation to any application made by an employee um, directly to the panel and then where an employee um, makes an application directly to the panel, any determination made by the panel is not binding on other employees who did not make the application. And what might the panel consider as part of their deliberations? So uh, this is outlined in 14A.5, and that is the available relevant material, the provisions of the agreement itself, the material submitted by the employees and or unions, then you've got the materials sub submitted by the employers and or VHAA, then in the case of the submissions under subclause 14A, 4D Roman numeral 3, any material submitted by the union and the VHAA. Um, and just to note, we do have a cross-reference in the um, cross-reference issue in the agreement, so we've just fixed that there on screen. So in the case of submissions under 14A.6, below any material submitted by or on behalf of the department, and that subclause recognises that the department has a right to um, have the government's funding interests heard and considered in the decisions of the panel. Um, and it just outlines interests include significant funding, policy and service delivery considerations and implications. And then clause 14A.5C states that the panel may inform itself in any matter it sees fit. What's meant by this? So in the case of a classification dispute, they um, may rely on views of an expert advisor to provide clinical expertise in that area of clinical practice relevant to the classification matter under consideration. And can the panel pick any individual to assist them in the process? No. So the advisor must not be an employee of the health service subject to the application and they must also be agreed by the panel. And we discussed earlier that a lawyer or paid agent is unable to advocate to the panel. Is the same restriction placed on the VHIA, VARPA and employers? So it's not. Uh, clause 14A.5E highlights that, these part, that the parties are able to advocate to the panel. And the clause states that parties will have full unrestricted access to the relevant information. Is there any exception to this? So there is a, an exception to that where the panel determines that access to the material is inappropriate for legal or confidentiality reasons. And if an employee is involved in a matter before the panel during their normal duties, are they required to access their leave balance in order to attend? No. So in such cases, the employees allowed time off for their normal from their normal duties and pay their normal wage for time for attending, as so long as that unduly uh, doesn't unduly affect the employer's operations. And there can be differing interpretations of what pay is considered to mean. Are you able to provide some clarity? Yeah, absolutely. So for the purposes of the clause, pay includes uh, shift allowances and other payments the employee or VARPA representative would have received had they not been released from duty. And that's ensuring the employee is in the same position they would have been had they not been required to participate in this dispute settling procedure. You got that one exactly like how you got the clue. So we've mentioned throughout today's podcast that the panel will consider material provided. Does this clause set out the information that needs to be provided to the panel? Yeah, it does. So that's 14A.7 states that a party shall provide all relevant material to the panel as soon as practical and they are listed in the 
um, clause as some examples. So we've got staffing, slash EFT levels and profiles, position descriptions, rosters, proposed or actual professional reporting lines for or to the proposed um, positions. Then we've got records relating to an application, for example, leave, backfill, vacancies, absenteeism and leave accruals. Then we've got organisational structure and or other material relating to supervision and management, staffing and workload and backfill. So the application has been made, materials have been submitted and the panel has reviewed all the relevant material. When will the parties be notified of a decision? So um, it's actually intended to be quite quick. So the chair will notify VARPA, the employer and the employee, in writing within 14 days of their decision. And what about the decision of the panel? So the panel will determine the applications by majority with written reasons to be prepared by the chair, including any dissenting decision or a summary of any dissenting decision. And uh, that's provided to the parties. So no determination of the panel shall be shall be regarded as a precedent and then also we have that a determination of the panel will be considered binding unless the employer and the VHAA and all the employees and or unions makes an application to have the commission um, deal with the matter within 14 days of receiving the written determination and the matter is resolved in accordance with the dispute resolution procedure. And when does the determination for a reclassification apply from? So the determination by the um, panel applies from the date of the application made by the employee. And what occurs if the determination is that the lower classification applies? They um, have their salary maintained. Okay, and once an application to the panel has been made, can it be withdrawn before a determination is made? Yeah, so the notify of the dispute to the panel can withdraw the application at any time. Um, but that has to be in writing and the chair will ensure that that's communicated to um, all the relevant parties. And has the dispute panel chairperson been determined yet? No, not as yet. We've started the discussion, but we are still trying to determine that and we hope that that will be done uh, soon. That's great. Thank you for taking us through these clauses. Thanks. Each